scripture passage for today's sermon is Psalms 34, 1 through 11. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes it boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. God's word is so, so good, and it's enjoyable. Thank you, worship team. And, and uh, it's enjoyable just to have other people read the word of God. And, man, I don't know who that girl was tonight, but she really can read the best I've ever heard, you know? So it was really brave because Pastor Matt was back there with our kids, and I had no idea how that was going to go. But they seemed to do okay. So props to parents with kids coming out. We thank you for being here. It's good to see everybody, or at least one-third of you, right? It's good to see all of your foreheads and your eyes. I'm just going to assume uh, that you're smiling uh, because that helps me a little bit. So, but it's good to see you. Uh, so thankful just to be able to join you today and uh, just to share God's word with you. I'm really excited to share uh, God's word with you today, especially on the topic that I get to share with you. Today's title, if you want to give the sermon a title, is about the goodness of God. So as Pastor Matt has already said, uh, as we started the service, that we've been in the series, which is God's unsecret identity. God, uh, his identity is revealed to us predominantly through his word, right? God is not hidden from us, and we do have, of course, the example of Jesus Christ, but we can know God through his word. And so that's the idea of this series, God's Unsecret Identity. And then we've been studying the attributes of God. And this week we're going to be talking about the goodness of God and the goodness of God being a reason for us to praise God, the goodness of God being a reason for us to glorify God and to worship him. And as Pastor Matt even said, it's appropriate that last week's sermon was on the sovereignty of God because these two attributes go hand in hand with each other, right? The sovereignty of God, that God is in control of all things. God is in control of everything. Everything that happens, God is in control of it. That is the sovereignty of God, that God is all-powerful. And now we're looking at the goodness of God. And these two attributes of God go hand in hand. They dovetail perfectly together. And it's really important, I think at least, for us as Christians to understand that God is both sovereign and God is good. We have to understand that. And if we can understand that, and if we can at least try to understand it, I think it really gives us confidence uh, on living the Christian life. So it's important that we look at these two attributes back to back. And often when we talk about the goodness of God, many people make the claim that if God is good, he is not all-powerful. And if he is all-powerful, then he is not good. Otherwise, how could a good God allow bad things to happen? 
How could an all-powerful, all-sovereign God also be good if he's allowing everything to happen the way that it's happened in our world currently, right? The things that are taking place in our world right now. How could a good God allow something like that to happen? Or personally, things that have happened in our lives that have shaken our faith, that have brought us to a place where we've doubted the goodness of God. And this really is the ultimate question. If God is good, he is not all-powerful, and if he's all-powerful, then he is not good. Otherwise, how could a good God allow bad things to happen? It's really an impossible question to answer in one sense, but I think it's important for us to go to God's word and really try to understand the goodness of God and the goodness of God being a reason for us to praise him. So in one sense, this question cannot be answered except by the one who's asking it. Every single one of us has been in a situation, whether we lost a job or lost a loved one or whatever it might have been, where we've been left at this place of asking why. And every single one of us asks this question of, God, if you're good, how could you let this happen? And then we're forced to answer that question for ourselves. Here's what I would suggest, though. Only in a Western society, only in our culture, here in America, are we left without hope when we ask the question, why? Most every other culture and religion in the world accepts the reality of pain and suffering, except for in America, right? Our lives are supposed to be good, and if something goes wrong, or if things don't go according to plan, then our whole lives are thrown out of balance. So most every other culture and religion in the world accepts the idea of pain and suffering, but only in our culture are we confronted with the issue of pain and suffering, and our assumption is there must not be a God. There must not be a God, because if he is, then then he wouldn't allow this to happen. If there was a God, then he wouldn't allow this pain. He wouldn't allow this suffering. And so only in our world, only in our culture, when we go through something difficult, do we come to a place where we make the assumption that God must not be real. This, isn't a common, this, is, an un, this is a common question that a lot of people are asking in our world right now. The problem, at least I think, with making this point is that when we ask the question why, and if we come to the conclusion that there must not be a God, then there's no meaning for our pain. There's truly no meaning for our suffering, so why even ask the question why, right? If I go through something difficult and there's no God, then it really it doesn't have meaning, so why even be bothered with asking the question why? In my opinion, only a Christian worldview has the ability to stand up to this question. As we heard David sing in the Psalms 34, God redeems the life of believers and he does not allow us to be condemned. God redeems our life and he prevents our lives from being condemned. Although we may never have the answer why, Although we may never get the question to why God has allowed the pain and suffering in our lives that he has, we can be confident at the very least that our suffering is not meaningless. Even though we may never have the answer this side of heaven, we can be confident that God gives our pain and our suffering purpose. Timothy Keller, he's a pastor and a writer. Many of you have probably heard of him before, read some of his books, seen them on YouTube or whatever it might be, listened to a podcast with him. 
But Timothy Keller, when dealing with the why question, says that we need to avoid pat answers, that we need to embrace living without an answer, and we must anticipate the ultimate answer. What he means is that when people are struggling with this idea of the goodness of God, we must not simply tell them, you just need to have more faith, right? We've all heard that before, either personally in our own lives, we've gone through something and somebody has just told us, you got to have more faith. And that just doesn't seem to cut it. As a matter of fact, I think that hurts more than it helps. We can't just offer pat answers. We can't just talk about the goodness of God in a way that trivializes and makes the goodness of God small. We can't just give uh, pad answers. And we must also recognize that similar to Job, we're all familiar with Job, right? It's what we read whenever we're having a bad day. But we must also recognize that similar to Job, when he asks why, we must be comfortable with how God chooses to respond. I'm so, God, so glad that God includes things like this in Scripture, aren't you? That God allows us to see in the example of Job when he's going through what is the most difficult circumstances imaginable, and Job begins to question God. God turns to Job, and he said, I love this. This is so, like, raw. This is so intense. Job questions God, and God said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? He's simply, he's simply saying, Job, you just don't understand. You don't get it. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. They're higher. They're better. They're greater. They're more. God is so much higher, and I would just rather allow my understanding of God to expand than shrink down God to a God that I can understand, Right? I would rather allow my understanding of God to expand and say, God, I don't understand this, but I know that my suffering and that my pain is not meaningless. And lastly, we must also anticipate the ultimate answer, which is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Initially, I thought this sermon was going to be easy. <laughs> it's the goodness of God, right? We just get to get up here and we sing a couple songs. We talk about how good God is. I thought this was going to be super easy just to get up and talk about how good God is. And he is. He is. But yikes. <laughs> there are things that many of us are going through currently right now that cause us to question the goodness of God. I mean, just think about the situation that our world is in. Think about many, how many people have lost their jobs. Even more, how many people have lost loved ones. How could a good God allow something like this to happen? And so I thought this was going to be easy to talk about the goodness of God, and I still think it is. It's just I don't have the words. God's word has the words. And so when we go to God's word and we look at God's word, it allows our understanding of who God is to expand to a place where it gives us something to sink our teeth into. Human words will fail, human wisdom will fail, but God's word will remain forever, right? And so we go to God's word, and that's the importance of us going to God's word, and I'm thankful for Psalm 34. Because on the face, Psalm 34, of Psalm 34, you might think that David is having a pretty good day, right? He just wakes up, starts whistling, singing a song. He must have awoken to a beautiful sunrise with coffee in the air, I don't think they had coffee, which is a shame, although I don't like coffee. Don't judge me for that. <laughs> but he must have awoken to a beautiful sunrise with the smell of coffee in the air, 
and now he's having some alone time with Jesus. And he just starts to pen this beautiful psalm, this beautiful song, this beautiful poem. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. This psalm was actually written at one of the lowest points in David's life so far. What is so interesting about this psalm is that it's one of 14 psalms that actually has a historical context to it. We know exactly what David was going through when he wrote this psalm. In many of your Bibles, if you have your Bibles open, in many of your Bibles in Psalm 34, it likely says at the beginning of the psalm of David when he had changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. What you'll find is that Abimelech is actually the title given to the king of Gath. His name was actually Achish, King Achish. It's kind of a weird name. His name's King Achish, and we actually read about this story in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. So in order for us to get into the mindset of where David is as he writes this incredible song, praising the goodness of God, I want to read 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. So if you want to flip back a few pages in your Bible to 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15, I'm going to get right into it, but this is what it says. David at Gath. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. That would be Abimelech. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land, isn't he the one they sing about in their dances? Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence, and while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, Look at the man. He is insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? So to help paint this picture for you, of where David is when he pens this incredible psalm, David is literally fleeing for his life, and he finds himself in the city of Gath. David is fleeing for his life from King Saul, right? David is going to be king. He was anointed king. Saul catches wind of this and begins to chase David. Saul, in his jealousy, is trying to kill David, and so David flees to the city of Gath, which just so happens to be the hometown of a man that you may or may not have heard before. His name, Goliath. David finds himself in the hometown of Goliath. Also kind of important to note that as David is fleeing for his life, the high priest, Ahimelech, not to be confused with Abimelech, the high priest gave him some bread and a sword. How very thoughtful Except one minor detail, the sword that he gave David was Goliath's sword. Remember the, the sword that he pulled from Goliath's body after he hit him in the head with a stone? He takes that sword and then separates Goliath's head from his body to humiliate not just Goliath, but all of the Philistines. And so now David, running for his life from King Saul, finds himself in the city of Gath with quite literally a target strapped to his back. 
let's just say the people begin to notice. Surely this is it for David. There is no way that it could get any worse, right? David couldn't be any lower than where he currently is, but it does. It gets a little cringy. It gets a little kind of sad to see what David decides to do because instead of David taking it like a man and accepting his fate, he starts to act like a crazy person. He carves marks into the door of the gate and he begins to drool all over himself. This is not a good look for David. I mean, this is the guy that's supposed to be the king of Israel and he's acting like a crazy person. My question is, how did he get there? Like, what was going through his mind in that moment where he's like, I know exactly what I'm going to do? Like, I know that he probably didn't have a lot of options, but why did he think that he was going to act like a crazy person? Out of all the options, why did he choose this one? Oddly enough, God, in his incredible sovereignty, which we heard about last week, uses David's embarrassing behavior to cause Achish to say, do I lack madmen? that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Because of this, David is sent away from Gath, sent away from the king, and narrowly escapes with his life. Now, David, if you continue to read the story, from a cave, likely from a cave of Adullam, begins to pen this incredible poem and song in praise to his God. What I find so incredible about this psalm is that when David wrote it, he wrote it in such a way that he could remember it. It's actually called an acrostic, and he uses, the first, uh, he uses each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to write this incredible poem and psalm so that way he could remember the goodness of God when he delivered him from his enemy. I think that should speak to us about times where we should try to remember the goodness of God in times of our lives when life's not going the way that we want it to go. David wrote a song so that he could remember the goodness of God. I'm not sure what you're facing today. I had the opportunity just on Thursday of this week to talk to a 19-year-old boy, young man, he's not a boy, I had the opportunity to speak to him as he's just relapsed and he's now back facing leukemia again. And I spoke to his parents, and I thought, God, why am I preaching on the goodness of God? And here I am faced with having to talk to this young man who is battling cancer in a way that just causes you as a kid, as a young man, or even as a parent, to question God's goodness. So I'm not sure what you're facing at this moment, but as we look at this psalm together, I hope that we can join together with David and praise God and at, like, like David, even at the lowest point of our li life, find the ability to give God the praise that he's due. Now that we understand the mindset that David was in as he wrote this psalm, when we take a closer look at it, we can actually see the psalm is broken down into two parts. The, far, the first part is more, uh, is more like a song. So as you look at the first part of this psalm, verses 1 through 10, it looks to be written like a song. And then the second part is more like a teaching or like a sermon. And we're going to look at these two parts. We're not going to be able to get into the second part, which makes me so sad. We'll get into it a little bit. I'm going to pull out a few things that I think will be helpful for us, but we're going to spend a lot of our time talking about the first part of this psalm 
and give us just a, the ability to join and be invited into praising God along uh, with David. So the first part we're going to look at is verses 1 through 10, and this is what I'm calling the song. And that actually, this part of it has three parts to it as well, and the first part of that, starting with verses 1 through 3, is an invitation for you and I. It's an invitation for the reader. It's an invitation, and as David begins this song by praising God, he says that he will bless the Lord, and his praise will continually be in his mouth. Often, when we think about the idea of blessing, we think of blessings as coming from God, right? We don't often think about the ability that we have to bless God, but that's exactly what David is doing here. He is blessing God. Here, David is speaking a good word about God, and his love for the Lord is making its way to his mouth. The goodness of God is making its way to his words. That when David is experiencing the deliverance from his enemy, David can't help but talk about the goodness of God. I just wonder if, like David, when we go through something where we clearly see the hand of God at work in our life, if we take a second to give God praise, to thank God, and to praise God for what he's done. He goes on to say that his soul makes its boast in the Lord. David is bragging on God, and he's sharing about the goodness of God at work in his life. David is so excited that he invites all who are humble. You can see that there in the passage. He says, all who are humble, and he invites them to magnify and exalt the Lord together. It's important that we don't miss that David is appealing to those who are humble. Let's be reminded of the situation that David is in. He was anointed to be king, but now somehow he's found himself fleeing from Saul, narrowly escaping death from King Achish, and he finds himself in a cave. And yet he's able to praise God, and he's appealing and inviting those who are humble to exalt God with him. It's the humble who recognize in the situations that they face in life that they deserve no good thing. So they take inventory of their life, and they understand that anything good that they have is a reflection of God's blessing and goodness in their life. To see the goodness of God and to be able to praise him for it requires us to walk in humility. I wonder if we can't see the goodness of God in our life because we're too prideful at times, because we think that life should have turned out differently for us. And so instead of acknowledging God for the good that he's done, or instead of acknowledging God for the blessings he's given us, all we can see is what he hasn't done for us and why things haven't turned out the way that we wanted them to. It's the humble, it's those who walk in humility who have the ability to praise God in their lowest circumstances. It's also important not to miss the word together. I love that, especially now in this season of life. There is something about not containing the goodness of God at work in your life, but sharing it with those around you. Not only does it help us to appreciate God, but it allows the world to see God at work in our lives, and it encourages those around us. This is particularly important for us to be reminded of, I think at least, in this season that we're currently going through. As we gather together, as David says in this passage, 
and worship God with one another, we are exemplifying for the world around us the hope that we have in Christ, Christ and testifying to God's ability to sustain us. I was personally convicted when reading this passage in Psalms in considering that maybe I haven't been vocal enough about the goodness of God in my life. Have I been so prideful that I haven't had the ability to see God at work so that I would remain silent at a time when the world desperately needs to hear about the hope that I have in Jesus? Why is that? Not just as a church organization where we stream things online or where we post videos, but as the individual members of the body of Christ, are we speaking up about the goodness of God when the world needs the hope that we have? I would love to learn how to humble myself and join with David so that we can lift our voices to praise God together. Amen? So David invites us to praise him, and then David gives a testimony of the goodness of God in verses 3 through 7. David begins to praise God for his very specific deliverance from Achish, and although David acted like a crazy man, he doesn't take credit for his own freedom, but attributes it to God. David very specifically says that I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all of my fears. This poor man cried out, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around all those who fear him and delivers them. At this point, I feel like I need to challenge cynicism in myself and in us. If David would have died to Saul or at the hands of the king of Gath, if David would have died, would God be any less good? No. I'm sure it can be easy to read this and consider that's great for David. God delivered David, but he hasn't delivered me. But he has. He has delivered you through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's not a cop-out. That's not a pad answer. It's the truth. David, or God rather, sustained David at the lowest point of his life, and he is sustaining you as well. Not just now, but for all eternity. All of the pain that we experienced, experience is being used by God to accomplish his purpose in our life. And if our inclination, and this was like, such an, like, such an understanding for me as I was reading this passage, that if we're inclined to question the goodness of God and to cynically respond to the difficulty that we experience, we waste our pain and we gut it of any meaning. If we go through something difficult and immediately ask the question, why, or not again, or that's just great, God, exactly what I needed, we remove the ability for our pain to have meaning. Cynicism robs you of seeing the goodness of God in life's difficult moments. When David wrote this, he was nowhere near from being out of harm's way. We still find him in a dark place, yet he is praising God because for the moment he could see how God delivered him. And ultimately he knew that even if he died in the hands of evil men, that God would redeem his life and that he would not be condemned. I remember when God did that for me. Not literally. <laughs> but there are times when 
I know that God has delivered me from difficult situations. Can you remember a time where God's done that for you? Can we praise God together for that? Can you recall a time when God delivered you? He hears you and he will deliver you. The angel of the Lord who is Jesus encamps around you. And then David in verses 8 through 10 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. So after inviting us to join in praise with him and testifying of God's goodness, David tells us to try God out for ourselves. Similar to when you bite into something delicious and say, you've got to try this. David is now inviting us to experience the goodness of God by trying him out for ourselves. To taste is to personally experience and to see is to fully know. So let us be reminded again of the condition that David finds himself in when he writes these words. This is not a man unfamiliar with difficulty, and yet he is convinced that if we learn to trust in God, we will be blessed. Another familiar idea that we see again in this passage is the importance of us learning to fear the Lord. Of course, this is not fear in the sense of being afraid of God. Earlier, David said that he delivered him from all of his fears. The word for fear and connection to God is different from the fears that you and I face on a daily basis. When David invites us to fear the Lord, he is speaking of fearing God in a positive way. It's a fear that gives us confidence that God is the one worth praising. It is a fear that gives us confidence in what God is doing in our life. It's not a fear of God as if he's making us kind of have just as many good days as bad days. It's a fear of God and understanding that if we're afraid, if we fear God, we don't have to be afraid of anything else. When we learn the fear of the Lord, we learn not to be afraid. It then transitions from a song into a sermon, and I just want to touch on it real quick in part two as I I get ready to wrap up. I feel like it's really important because I feel like this is where things get really interesting. And so David invites us, he testifies about the goodness of God, and then he tells us to taste and see. But then in part two, David begins to give us wisdom for life. He says, come, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And David begins to tell them, tell us, the reader, how to live our lives and that we should live righteous lives, holy and separated. Even though the temptation might be that life is difficult, so I might as well cheat a little here, talk about that person there, I might as well get a leg up on this person. David says, no, you are to live righteously in spite of the difficulty that you're facing or experiencing in life because there's a difference between those who are righteous and those who are wicked. There's a difference between those who live for God and those who live for themselves. And he says in verse 15 that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Although it may be easy at times to be tempted to doubt the goodness of God, and like Job, his wife recommended Job to do, although we might be tempted to curse God and die, while we may wonder what value there is in living a righteous life, David teaches us the value of a righteous life. And he accidentally prophesies in verse 20 of this psalm, 
about Jesus Christ. I think this is so cool. In verse 20, he says, he keeps all of his bones and none of them is broken. David is speaking about the righteous and he says that he keeps his bones and none of them is broken. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise of everything that we read in this psalm. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the reason we praise God, and Jesus is the hope that we have to share. Jesus is why you are sitting here in church today, and Jesus is why we praise God. Jesus was known as the man of many sorrows. He suffered the most excruciating death and was delivered from death, and he's the guarantee of our salvation. Jesus is why you and I, in any circumstance, like David, can say, I will bless the Lord at all times. It's Jesus that gives us the confidence that the Lord redeems the life of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. If David, and I'll close with this thought, if David can praise God from the lowest point of his life without ever having known Jesus, then I hope all of us who know Jesus can walk in the fear of the Lord and magnify his name together. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for the example that David sets for us in the lowest place of his life, praising you, God. God, without ever having known Jesus, he speaks of Jesus. And yet here we stand in worship today, singing of your goodness, and we know you. And so, God, I pray that through your word and through the time spent in worship, God, that no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through, that we can praise you. God, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you just for the opportunity for us to come here together. And Lord, I pray that together we would praise you, that together we would talk about the goodness of our God, and that together, Lord, that we would testify to the world around us of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. God, we ask your blessing upon this service, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.